Welcome to the book club interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host, where we read a book a week and then interview the author. Uh, this week, we read Wheelbarrow Prophets by Jake and Gino. Uh, we would like to welcome Gino Barbaro, father of six children, 25 years as a restaurant owner, graduate of IPEC, the Institute of Professional Excellence in Coaching. Uh, he's a certified professional coach that exited the rat race on March 1st, 2016, partner in jakeandgino.com, a real estate education company, and he owns a portfolio of 900 plus units valued at over $50 million. So welcome to the show, Gino. How are you doing today? Scott, I'm doing good. One book a week, 50 books a year, right? 52, whatever it is, I'm not even, I'm stick with math. That's 500 <laughs> books at, after 10 years, that's 250 books. That is a college education in and of itself. So I congratulate you on that. Definitely, yeah. I mean, that's not heard it once that, you know, you, you kind of look at successful people and what are their habits and, and reading was one of them. And, um, you know, I just, uh, as a former teacher, I, I truly believe in education and, um, you know, it's combining a couple of my passions and you, you were more than kind to, to come on the show. So I, I appreciate your time. And you guys wrote an amazing book on uh, multifamily investing. So, um, so speak to that a little bit. So what, how did the book come about? Did you get to a certain point where you felt successful and you wanted to give back? Or was it kind of to journey the process that you've been through? That's a great question. I never really thought about it. Why? I know I had written a cookbook um, first um, when I was in the, re in the restaurant. I wanted to branch out and I only have one physical location. So unfortunately, my brother was a partner. So I said, listen, let's start creating a brand, right? Let's start. We have a cookbook. I can start gardening with my kids. We can start doing videos. We can have physical products. I want the whole process to build out from one physical location. That's where business is going, right? I always talk about the spoke and the restaurant was the hub. You start throwing off revenue streams of income, whether it's a physical product, whether it's a cookbook, whether it's a YouTube videos, whether it's um, you know from the restaurant itself, whether you want to do parties, catering, whatever it is. So. I unfortunately just, you know, I wrote the book and it was sitting there for a couple of years. And I said to myself, I just, I don't see you going anywhere because my brother didn't have the same vision as I did. So uh, we got into real estate. I got it. I had been in real estate, you know, dabbling part time and I like multifamily. So I said to Jake, I met Jake um, in 2009 or 2010. He was doing catering out of my restaurant. He said, you know, I love real estate. I want to get out of the rat race. I'm going down to Tennessee. So I said, when you get down there, settle down, we'll start looking. Uh, he moved in 2011, took us 18 months to find our first deal. We bought our first deal in February 2013. Um, after 18 months of struggle, he went out. He actually bought a house in the meantime. His wife wanted the house and all. So I was like, ah, oh, Jake, you're killing me, you know? But anyway, <laughs> those bygones be bygones, right? Uh, three months later, we got a second deal. I was like, wow, 25 units, then 36 units, brought in a partner with that. Then the third deal comes about, it's 136 units, which is February of 2014, that's our third deal. After that third deal, the reason why I'm giving this background, after that third deal, I said to Jake, let's write a book about our success. Um, it was sort of based on the same model as the restaurant. We can throw maybe another revenue stream going on, but more importantly, it was really great for me because I'm like, if these guys can write books, why can't we write a book? Um, and I said, let's, it's not only about the real estate itself, it's also about the story, it's about the journey. And something funny that I learned in life, you know, you learn, you do, and then you teach. But when you start teaching it, all of a sudden you're learning more stuff and you're, you're, you're surrounding yourself with some really amazing people. And that's what happened to me. And that's how we spun off. We started doing the podcast called Wheel of Our Profits. Because when you go out there, really, how many podcasts out there are strictly on multifamily real estate? You have a very few out there. You have Michael Blank, who's great. You have Reed Goosens, 
who's great, but there's not really that many. A lot of them are just single family residential, you know, low, lower level stuff. So from that education spun the podcast, which I credit a lot. I mean, how many how many guys can say they've talked to Ken McElroy, T. Harv Ecker, Bob Berg, um, you know, the list goes on, Cameron Harold. You spend an hour with people and you start learning from them. And something that started out as a joke and writing a book has turned into like a little education company. And that's another revenue stream from our multifamily real estate. Awesome. Yeah, it's quite the jump uh, from the first couple up to that 136 units. So I want to talk about that period um, where in the book you said um, there was like a a break where six months went by where you kind of you didn't necessarily give up, but you you took a break to reflect. So what what happened during that period? It's funny because back then there were deals, right? I mean, everyone says the market's hard right now and you don't get your first deal is tough. Whenever you're getting your first deal in any market, whether it's, you know, I talked to Todd Dexheimer yesterday on our podcast. He started back in 2008. His first deal, he found it was, it took him a year to get into it. But back then there were so many deals around. So it's, it's always hard to start. It's never the perfect time to start, whether it's 08, where the occupancy is really low, um, prices are really depressed, but the financing is harder and, you know, the sky's falling. So everyone's has that negative. Negativity. So is it easy to start back then? No. Is it easy to start now when cap rates are low and compressed? And it's not easy to start now either. So for us, we got the, can you sign this exclusivity with us? We're like, no, then y'all ain't doing business down here. We got that from, from brokers down here. Um, and it was frustrating because they're like, you know, I have some credibility. I have some money, um, but I just can't find the right deal. And I had already learned from my trials and tribulations that the number one aspect of uh, our three-legged framework is buy right. Um, if you do not buy right, you will fail in your, in your, um, in your, in your journey. Unfortunately, I want to say unfortunately, you know, the last couple of years that hasn't held true as much because the market's been elevating. So people have done some stupid things and have been lucky. But if and when that market resets and you've bought something at a five cap thinking that you're going to reposition it to a six cap and all of a sudden cap rates go to eight, you're going to be really in big trouble. So it was hard for us to find something that made sense that we were able to buy. You know, the buy right is you have to do that, right? Once you buy right, you're locked in. The manage right is ongoing day to day. You need to secure how to manage right. And financing right is, is, the, is the third leg where you really need to get that long-term secure. Hopefully you can get non-recourse financing. We started with the recourse where we were guaranteeing it with community banks. We've been able to roll it into non-recourse. Guys get caught in the weeds. And they first start out, well, I'm recourse. I have to sign in the debt. Listen, that's where we all started. The goal is to go to non-recourse, but that, that shouldn't hold you back. Because when we first started out, we didn't have a ton of assets. So if they want to sue us personally, I'm guaranteeing it. Go right ahead. What are you going to do? It is what it is, right? But that's why the buy right comes into play because you're limiting your downside risk. So you're, you're guaranteeing it. But at the same time, you're buying something that makes sense that chances are you're not really going to you're not really going to uh, default on that, that, that debt anyway. And definitely, I think when everybody plays in that one to four, you know, unit space, you're always, you know, signing recourse debt as it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the risk goes down because you have more people paying your income with the more units Mm -hmm. you have. Um, I agree. So let's talk about the name Wheelbarrow Profits. It's pretty unique. So the buy right, Mm -hmm. manage right, finance right. Did you just think, you know, here's our three criteria and, um, you know, Oh, here's a wheelbarrow, and that's like some catchy term, or was it kind of? Uh... Well, uh, you know, that's a great question. That's another something I haven't really thought of until right now. It's a great name, and I hate it for two reasons. As <laughs> trying to create a brand, 
people might not associate a wheelbarrow to what the heck are you talking about to, to multifamily. And I'm looking at the book behind you. You see apartment buildings in there. The reason why the name came about, Jake was doing some gardening. You know, you talked about the chainsaw before, right? He was doing some landscape in his backyard. He had a wheelbarrow. And he's like, wow, there's three legs to the wheelbarrow, two legs and the wheel. Isn't that what we're doing? The buy right is one leg. It's fixed. The finance right is the other leg. It's fixed. And the wheel is the wheelbarrow is the manage right. If one of those three is not secure, what's going to happen to your wheelbarrow? It's going to tip over. So when you're trying to teach people and trying to talk to people, whether it's Stephen Covey, the seven you know habits of highly successful people, there's frameworks. And that's how we learn. We learn by doing a framework. So that was our framework. You, you'd write the book by buying right managing right and financing right and then from there you break it down into what you need to do to buy right what you need to do to manage right and what you need to do to finance right so i love the name and at the same time i hate the name because some people might not might not say hey what does that mean right so um you know yeah but it's catchy i mean once it's stuck in your head you understand you guys like <laughs> yes. you're never gonna forget yes. a gino and a G, yeah so <laughs> that's good um, no, it's a great intro. So, so chapter, you know, two and three, we go from the basics of real estate investing, which you explained really well. I think that's one of the best things about your book is, you know, as a former teacher, you're taking a complex task and breaking it down in simple terms. And I think you guys did an awesome job. And I think that's what originally hooked me with the book is, is like, you guys are explaining this so I can understand it. And I've always appreciated that, you know? Um, so let's go into the psyche of a real estate investor. Um, you're extremely powerful on mindset. So how does that go into multifamily investing and how has that you know, strengthened your company as it's grown over the years? Well, that should be everybody's mantra. Everyone should go to coaching school or get some training on self-development because that's what it's all about. It's all about figuring out what your why is. If you can't figure out what your why is, if you don't know what you want, I can ask you, Scott, what do you want? You can say, hey, I don't want to do this, but that's not what it's all about. It's what do you want? If you can figure out what you want in life, then it's going to be a lot easier for you to, to, to achieve it. So for me, I just wanted to have financial freedom. I wanted my lifestyle to be affording my business, not my business affording my lifestyle. So to be able to be on this call, to be able to work out of my house, to be able to talk to guys that are, you know empower me every day, that's what it was about for me. So um, the mindset is everything who you surround yourself with what you think about i was stuck at the restaurant dealing with people when i'm the smartest guy in the room there's a problem bro and i was the smartest guy in the room for a long time there was no growth there's no contribution going on i was making money and that's not what life is all about you hear about guys who sell their companies for 200 million bucks six months later they're, they're bored out of their minds it's not about the money it's about growing as a person stepping outside your comfort zone and contributing that's what really brings i think true happiness and true success because you know hey listen i was on vacation last week it's great but by day three i'm ready to come home i'm like you know the beach is great and all i live in i live in st augustine i am on an eternal vacation down here um it gets boring after a while it really does being home every day with the kids is it's great but after a while it becomes commonplace it doesn't become like oh it's a special time so for me i think the mindset is everything to investing and into life definitely um and, and that's what you said i think in in the intro you said your best advice was negotiate everything and never give up and I think mm -hmm. that persistence is is key. So, you know, 25 years in a restaurant, how hard was that to to take that jump? And and was there a certain, you know, dollar amount that you said, okay, you know, I can cover my mortgage and my food for my kids, you know, health insurance. And then did you feel comfortable after that? It, it, that's a great question. Um, you know, yeah, well, for me, uh, I, I was raised into it. And for anybody who's not raised into the restaurant business, if you do it as a small business owner, as a mom and pop, 
it's really hard. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of hours. 10 hours in a day for me is nothing. I mean, I'm doing this stuff now. It's a joke, right? Um, I just, you know, I hated working holidays. And there we were open Easter. I was open Christmas Eve. I just, I really, truly hated that. And the two things of motivation, I was moving away from pain. Um, and when you move away from pain, that's a really big motivating factor. And I really use that unsubconsciously, not even knowing. And every time I hated the restaurant, it would propel me to sit down and read another book, send another email, analyze another deal, use that anger for you. It's not as empowering. It's a little catabolic as far as energy goes. It drains you a little bit, but it gets you where you got to go. Now I'm moving more towards pleasure, more towards, hey, I want to help other people and achieve this. Money's not the cause. It's the result for me now, which is just an awesome thing because I can help people. And hey, I don't feel bad making money doing it because I'm really helping a lot of people. But for me, um, I have six kids. I was living in New York. It's a big nut. You know, I had a lot of expenses. I knew exactly what I needed to make every month. Um, I wanted to get out of New York and quote unquote downsize and move to Florida. You know, the funny thing is my, my bills are more here, I, you know, because I'm living right near the beach. Right. So it worked in reverse for me. My paradigm, my enlightening moment was and I think I've told this story a couple of times with a couple of people. I'm sitting in the shed at my restaurant, putting away takeout container pans. And I'm just sitting there and I'm and I've been doing this for the last 15 years. It should be a 10 hour, $10 an hour job. But, you know, Gino's got to do I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You know how it is when you're a small business owner. And I'm on the phone with Jake and we're negotiating an 11 million dollar no money down deal. And I'm saying to myself, what the hell am I doing putting away these tins when I should be at home really working on my real estate? Right. I was making, I don't know, maybe five or six grand a month in passive income, maybe a little bit more at the time. And that it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, I'm washing dishes. I'm doing all this crap. Not only do I hate it, it's distracting me from. So there was a shift. I was doing the real estate for about two and a half years. And that was my goal. My goal initially was to make five or six grand a month in passive income to sub substitute or supplant or actually add income to the restaurant. I never thought in my wildest dreams that I'd be able to quit the restaurant and move to Florida. I never thought that. I didn't think big enough, right? So, and then that that's when I hit to myself, if I get this deal, I can get out of the restaurant. I can come down to Florida. I'll downsize, get maybe a smaller house and pay less bills. But when I got down here, all of a sudden, financial freedom does something to your mind, which I can't explain to you. You don't have to work for money. Opportunities start coming to you. All of a sudden, you can start becoming more creative. You can work on stuff. You can work, you know, what is it, in your business instead of, are you working on your business instead of in your business? And when you're working on your business, things start happening that I, I can't explain to you. It's a weird thing. So I came down here. My my living expenses, you know, went up, I would say 20% because I'm living near the beach. We're going to buy a golf cart now, the whole nine yards. But at the same time, I'm able to focus on growing the portfolio, growing the Jake and Gino platform and being able to really explode my wealth so and explode my passive income. So once you make that decision, burn the ships. There's no turning back because if you're a warrior like T. Harv Eker says, warriors don't go into battle saying, I might come back. You either come back or you don't come back. So when you have that sense of urgency, you're coming back. And that's what happened to me. That's awesome. Now, that, that's extremely powerful. So especially, I mean, I, I can't even imagine having, you know, a family and kids and, and being able to take that jump. And, you know, so did that discussion happen over many years with your wife? And I'm assuming she's supportive and, and you have, you know, amazing relationship because otherwise it wouldn't have happened. But 
Well, you know, it's really funny. Uh, she she was supportive of me because she, she saw how much I hated the restaurant at one point. I loved it for years. I worked with my dad. I worked with my brother. It was great. It was it was a family place. I still love it. I still love a lot of aspects of it. But the employees, the hours, some of the things I really dreaded, and she she saw that. I would work on Sundays. I worked every Sunday for freaking 20 years. You know what I mean? I, I just and, – and she's great, and there's certain things you have to do in life, and you just did it, and I, and I did it, and, and it's like that construct. What, who created the five-day, two-day? That's a human construct for control, right? I mean, read, you know, listen to MJ DeMarco, Millionaire Fast Lane. Everyone's got to read that book because if you need to get a kick in the ass, that'll kick you in the ass, and that, that really shook me to my core. I'm saying, why do we live to live 5-2? I love Mondays now. I love getting up Mondays and starting my week. I hate the weekends because it's too crowded. It's too busy. Everyone's around, and I have to wait till Monday to get back to work to talk to people. So and that shook me to my core. Um, my wife was totally uh, on board with me. I think the other aspect of it, you know, that really helped me out was I had really great network of friends and great network of people. Um, and also, you know, I'm sitting there, my wife is pregnant with our sixth child. I'm fearful. I'm afraid. How am I going to pay for this kid and all I'm sitting around and I, you know, go to my spiritual advisor, sit down with him. I tell him I'm all afraid. And he said something to me. And that's why I want everyone on the call to really be kind and be generous with your words and be good. I remember him saying, wow, that's all we need in the world. We need another Barbara. That'd be, you know, fantastic. The way he said that made me feel really good and, and, and put that fear aside for a little while. And when you have that fear go away from you, you're able to act and you're able to think positively. And those kind words really, you know, helped me out and really propelled me into, you know, taking those actions and, you know, having that friendship and having those people support you is really important in life. Awesome. So you have this great support system. You chose the market, you know, Tennessee. Um, let's talk about that. What are some good factors, you know, in choosing a market? You know, what's a good, you know, three or four bullet points that we should look for, you know, on the macro sure. level? Well, you know, it's funny. We got, it was sort of dumb luck that we hit Knoxville, Tennessee. Jake just moved there, but he moved there for the right reasons. Quality of living, employment was there. He got a job there. No state income tax. Um, and you know, the population growth and job growth, you, you want jobs to be going to an area. Does it have to be two or 3%? I don't know what the number is, but you obviously don't want jobs leaving like they are in New York, like they are in California. You want a, an affordable cost of living for a tenant. If a tenant has to pay $800 for a one bedroom apartment and he's only making, you know, two grand a month, he's not going to afford to be able to live there. You're not gonna be able to raise rents because is not there. So that's why people are leaving California and companies are leaving California and going to Texas. Because if a house in California costs $700,000 and he's making 60 grand a year, but if they move to Texas and that same house costs $200,000, the quality and the cost of living for that employee is better. So where are they moving? They're moving to areas where they can afford to live. So I think that's important. I think quality of life is important also. You you know, Knoxville's a great area. I mean, they're right near the Smoky Mountains. They've got enough employers there that you don't want to have something like in the effect of what goes on in Cleveland, where you have like the Cleveland Clinic or healthcare dominates the industry for um, jobs or Rochester, like I used to invest in, where it was Kodak. Because if that one company leaves or Corning, that in Dow, you know, Dow Corning and Corning Europe, if that one company leaves, you are in big trouble. And people say too big to fail, they'll never leave. Well, internet just is disrupting everything. So just be careful what's going on. Don't go to a certain area where there's one or two employers. Try to have certain size employers there. Manufacturing's nice if you can get some manufacturing. In Knoxville, we, we, we invest in a city called Maryville that has a nice manufacturing plant with Toyota. They keep investing. So look for those, look for those um, I guess, 
criteria when you're looking at a market. That's great. So, you know, we selected a market. Um, you have boots on the ground with Jake there. Um, do you, you know, build your team from there? And what's a successful team look like in multifamily investing? That's funny because when we fought our, bought our first deal, we didn't have a team. I mean, it was just me <laughs> and Jake. We were lucky that we got a great broker who understood owner financing. And from that broker, I would tell anybody investing and starting out in multifamily, first thing you need to do is choose one market. Focus on one market because you want to start building your team from the one market. Focus you know, like a laser beam. Say, I'm going to choose Chattanooga, Tennessee. Let's just pick any market. Now, once you choose Chattanooga, you go in there and you start researching brokers, start learning who the brokers are in the market. From that real estate broker, you should be able to get property manager. You should be able to get maybe a, a title company. You should be able to get maybe a contractor, an inspector. Go on there and start building the team. I would preferably have built the team before we bought our first deal because once you buy that first deal, things move so quickly. All of a sudden, you're in due diligence. You need to have a title agent looking at it or an attorney looking at it. You need to get you know schedule an inspection. Things come up to you really quick. So in the book, we do talk about how to build teams and what are the important team members. We have that period, that pyramid. And you know, people might think it's funny or ironic, but I think you know, family and coaching and mentoring is part of the top of your team because when you do have problems and you do have issues, you can go back to those guys, and that's where you start out with your team. With with, with I think that's the most important thing, and then from there, obviously, your real estate broker is 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 tops also. Awesome. And then uh, chapter six talk about speaking language. So NOI, cap rate, cash on cash returns. Um, how important is that when you were you know, going around trying to find that ideal broker. It's really funny you say that. Um, you know, I've read Kiyosaki's books. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have read his books. And he talks about a lot about the why of real estate, why of business. Not the how so much, but the why, the mind shift. And one of the things he talks about is your financial intelligence. People who are financially intelligent can speak the language, the financial language, whether it's NOI, whether it's cash on cash return, whether it's debt coverage ratio, you know, all these terms. You have to know these terms because when you're talking to somebody, you have to qualify yourself. You have to be credible in the space. Our educational system doesn't teach us that, right? So we have to teach ourselves that. And anybody who's financially successful knows all of these terms, knows all these business terms, all these acronyms. So if you can't speak a language, how are you going to be able to flourish in that language? It's like learning a, la a foreign language. If you, I, I speak Italian and Spanish. For me to be able to converse with somebody else in that language it makes life so much easier. So I think you I have to all go out there, learn all these terms. And the more books you read and the more knowledge you, you, you amass, these, these terms become commonplace to you. Definitely. No, it's great to hear. So chapter seven, eight, nine, we go into the legs, each leg, um, you know, first legs buy right. Um, we briefly spoke on that in the beginning. How important was that for your first deal? And I'm trying to, I'm trying to curious, you know, 25 units, you know, it sounded like you came from a little mom and pop, you know, one, two, four unit properties. And, and now this jump to 25. Um, did you have to leverage everything, you know, that first time? And did you, you know, use other people's money or was it kind of just let's throw all our chips in and let's bet on ourselves well it was me jake and i brought my brother on who's the restaurant and i just continued to bring him on not that i need his money but i said you know he's my brother i've got to take care of him but that first deal we were each in it was six hundred thousand ten percent down with closing costs it came out to eighty two thousand dollars so it was like twenty seven thousand dollars each i mean i was in restaurant like i said i had the money 
if I had to, I would have blown up my 401k. I would have done anything for that because I believed in, in the deal. And, um, you know, the 10% owner financing was great because we still, we still paying her the note. It's like 400 bucks a month. It's awesome. Uh, we refied the property out, pulled all our money out, but we were all in. I mean, the numbers worked on this thing. It was a mom and pop. Uh, she was there paying $7,000 a year in cable for these tenants. I don't know why it was weekly rental. So that, so the tenants were really crappy. They had no application fees. They had no background checks. It was just, it needed work on the property. It's one of those typical first deals that the average person is not going to look at and go, wow, there's a lot of problems. But as you learn, those problems is where you make the money because there's opportunities and way to create value. You have 25 people you're serving, you're going to make more money if you got 25 people as opposed to four people. So you have to look at it that way. Also, um, we had just bought properly. I mean, it was three years ago. Uh, no, was, I'm sorry, it was five years ago. So cap rates were in the you know eight to nines for that type of property, maybe even 10. Now cap rates for that property are probably between six and seven. It's a CC property. So um, it was a lot of value. And it, of course, obviously it was scary. You know, weekly they had no, we had to go door knocking for, for you know, to see who was there, to see if they had any, any um, security deposits. You know, there's drugs on the property. It needed a lot of work. But I mean, we just found the deal that, that can make sense. It was owner financing. It was great for our first deal. Oh, that's great. Um, in how long did it take you? It sounded like it, it needed a lot of work and, you know, turn around a property. Did you underestimate the time? Did you overestimate the time or? You know? On the first deal, yeah, that's a good question. On this first deal, we really took our time. We used all the cash flow from the property. Um, a year into it, septic fields went out. It was nine grand. So that was that was tough. I mean, we used the cash flow from the property to pay for that. We both had jobs at the time, so that was fine. Jake was earning 10% as a property management fee because he was managing the property the day to days. I remember him sending up the – I was doing the bookkeeping. So he'd send up all the bookkeeping to me. I was doing it on QuickBooks. So I was you know, pretty much hands-on a lot of that um, the first couple of deals. It took us probably three years to get that thing really stabilized because we'd get one tenant move out, one tenant in. We just, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of the work on the outside. And But, I mean, after the first year, it was really stabilized. We'd gotten rid of the weekly tenants. We went to monthly. You know, from day one, we had hired a resident manager. So we had somebody living on the property as a resident manager, which is a big boost. People coming on the property. We also were doing a little bit, a lot of the rehab work on the exteriors. As a unit came vacant, we would rehab that unit. Um, you know, three to four thousand dollars in cost was the average one because we had, a lot of them were built pretty well. They had tiles in them, but they needed upgrading. They needed painting. They needed some flooring. Um, but we did a lot of the exterior work in the first six months just to change the stigma of the property. We changed the signage. We created a website. It was less of a mom and pop and more of a business. Um, after three years, we rehab, we refinanced the property. They gave it a valuation of eight hundred grand. Uh, we were able to pull out one hundred eighty thousand dollars, and we had only put eighty two thousand dollars in. So if you guys do the math, that's fantastic. The property still cash flows between two and three grand a month. After all of that, after all the expenses, after the you know we had gotten in with between a five and a half and six percent interest rate initially, it was a twenty year term, right? And only a five year twenty year amortization in a five year term. When we refinanced it, it was four and a half percent, twenty five year am and seven year term. So the as you can see, we we increased the debt on it, but the payment dropped because we had such better terms, lower lower interest rate and higher uh, amortization that the payments were basically stayed the same, right? So that was one of our big mistakes in the beginning. We didn't know how to uh, negotiate with banks. We didn't know what we should be looking at. And that's what that's one of the mistakes I tell people. Spend money in your education. Go one-on-one -on -one with a mentor. Get into a community because 
if we had done that from the very beginning, we would have saved a ton of. I mean, pro- our our payments probably would have been at least five hundred bucks or thousand dollars less per month. That one tip alone would have paid for all of my education going forward. So. Um, it really worked out for us. And that 180 grand distributed it. We spent the remainder of it to doing some of the exterior work, putting up some decks and all. So um, if that's your vision, great way to do it, the refine roll. Refine roll. So so what's mm-hmm. the, the goal in the beginning of the uh, you know your, your business career? So let's say you need to get to a certain amount of uh, units for financial freedom. Um, do you, you know, go from there and take that picture and, and try not to spend that capital? Or do you you kind of put it back into the business, back into the business and, until you get comfortable, you know, enough with enough path, passive in, uh, monthly income. That's a great question because I, we have yet to syndicate a deal. We have almost a thousand units, so we haven't used a syndication model. Guys who are getting in and syndicating deals, they can um, – there's less equity. There's so many pros and so many cons to each strategy. The pro of syndication is basically, hey, listen – I've got an acquisition fee. That acquisition fee can help me pay for my bills, can help me keep the lights on, can help me do a lot of stuff, you know, keep me going. Um, I have investors that I have to adhere to, so I don't have control on the property. I have to really take care of them. Um, For us, it was, you know, let's get these properties stabilized. Let's refinance the money out. Let's pull that money out tax-free, or I want to say it's a loan. Nothing is ever free, but until you sell the property, you're not paying taxes. And that's the thing about real estate. I mean, there's so many tax benefits to it, but we pull out 180 grand. That money is zero tax. You have to make, what, 250 or 300 to earn 180. So, I mean, can you see the power in that? You're keeping all of that 180 and rolling that into your next deal. Um, So you... My goal would be if you're going to buy the property, try to get it done as quickly as possible. Try to push up that net operating income as quickly as possible. Stabilize it. Try to get a new refinancing on it. Try to get that new appraisal on it and then refine roll and go to the next one. That's what my strategy would be. That's great. So you talked about bridge debt to non-recourse. Um, so is are, are you nervous signing the bridge debt in the beginning that you know might be recourse or do you, you know have that – plan ahead of time where you, you could take that comfortable risk and, and move it to non-recourse. Well, that's one of the things. I was naive. I, I don't want to say it was stupid. I was ignorant. What you don't know, you don't know. I didn't even know what the heck the difference was between recourse and non-recourse. And the vast majority of even residential mortgage brokers in the residential industry don't even know what the heck non-recourse is. I went to get a loan on my house here that I bought in, I, I closed on in February. I went to a bank. I'm down here. I'm not going to name the bank. And I was talking to the guy. They looked at my tax returns. They didn't even know what the hell they were looking at. 13K. They, they, they were so overwhelmed. And I was the most qualified guy on the planet. And I said, you know, listen, you know, I'm, I'm going to go non-recourse. He didn't even know what that meant. So, you know, when you first buy your first property, if you're worrying about that, you're never going to close in a deal. Uh, never. That's going to hold you back. And then you don't get into real estate because it's not for you. It, there's, You know, I look at it this way. I've worked with community banks. That's, the, I guess, what we call the bridge financing. Community banks in the very beginning are a lot easier to deal with. Um, we dealt with a portfolio lender. You get a great relationship. They're so much easier to work with. Um, Paperwork-wise, they have the flexibility to do certain things for you, whether they can give you interest only, whether they can give you a certain amount of term, a little bit longer. They want demand deposits. So if you have a little 25-unit property getting 14 or 15 grand a month into the bank every month, they like that 14 grand a month because they can loan money on that. So for us, they were even trying out, one of the banks tried to guarantee, we're three partners, they wanted us to guarantee the deal 100% each. 
which I didn't understand at the time. So they wanted a 300% guarantee. So if the deal went bad, we each guaranteed. So just in case Jake doesn't decide to pay his, I pay mine. So that's one of the things you need to know on how to how to like uh, negotiate with these banks. But I wouldn't worry about that in the very beginning. If you can work with Freddie and Fannie from the very beginning, that's a great strategy. But mostly, most of those loans started a million dollars. So for the first guy, first time buying a deal, <clears throat> that's not achievable. Maybe some community banks out there do non-recourse. I don't think a lot of them do the vast majority. I wouldn't be held up on that. Don't let that stop. I mean, think of it as you buying your first deal, guaranteeing the debt. Like you said, when you buy a house, you're going to guarantee it anyway with recourse. Our goal was to start with recourse, community banks, and then roll it into non-recourse. And what, what we have is our community bank, we keep hitting thresholds where we keep getting to our, our debt limit where we can't we, we can't refi, we can't get a new debt with this bank. So what we're doing is we're continually taking out debt from there and bringing it to Freddie and getting it to non-recourse so we have more on the balance sheet where they can lend out to us. And our community bank is great. 15% down, 18 months of IO, 25-year AMS, seven and a half year terms. Those are awesome community banks. They're very flexible. And then once we reposition the property, we pull it out and we bring it to Freddie non-recourse. That's great. Uh, it sounds like you set up some great local connections, and mm-hmm. and like you said, it's it's never a great time to start. So so knowing all those you know financing terms and you know non recourse to recourse um, and negotiating, I think that that was your best advice in you know chapter one. Negotiate everything. Um, so let's you know page one seventeen. I had a, had a question. So negotiating the down payments, um, whether that's seller financing. Um, bank escrow released over 36 months, and I've never heard that before. So you can can you explain, um, you know, the bank escrow, you know, being released back to you over 36 months? Bank escrow being released. Uh, I'm just trying to think of what deal. See, what happened with us was we had put down so little on one of our first deals. We put down 15%. The bank wanted us to take a letter of credit. So we gave them a letter of credit. So we had to do that. So it was 36 months. And actually what happened is we refied the property. So we had not paid the letter of credit in time. So they so they gave us our money back, right? So it was really crazy. What Freddie and Fannie do, especially Freddie loans, you do a Freddie loan, they want a certain amount of money up front, which they hold in escrow. And then you close the deal. And then 60 days later, they release it. I just didn't understand why they do that. And they do that now. We just did a deal with them in uh, two weeks ago on a 67 unit. They got, I don't know, forty dollars or $50,000 of our money. I don't know why. Why not just bake that into the loan itself? It doesn't make any sense to me. So they, they do that now. Um, there's a lot of, you know, you, you want to talk about down payments and all. There's a lot of little techniques that we like to use. Listen, prorate the rent. Try to close at the beginning of the month so you get those rents prorated. Do not lower the price. Get them as a repair credit. Get them as a credit on the statement so you can use that money. You can fund your, your, your capital account. The other thing we like to do is you find repairs. Don't lower the price. Get a repair credit, whether it's a $6,000 roof, $8,000 driveway. Get that as money in on the front end. You've got a cable contract maybe that, that they have three years left on it. Don't knock that off the price where there's $5,000 left of cable money left on that bill. You should get that money. So try to get as many, I guess, prorations allowed to you, but get them as credits. Don't get them as, you know, taking money off of the price. Because once you take money off the price, you can't use that money. You want to build out a budget when you take the property over. You want to hit the ground running. You want to have money allocated to you. Um, so just do it that way. Smart. That's some great advice. Um, so let's talk about the Jake and Gino. Um, you know, I went to your uh, event 
last year in Tennessee, and it, it was amazing. I, th- I think you know what gravitated me towards your your platform at first is is you weren't really trying to pitch anybody. You know, you were just down to earth guys who were really trying to help and educate you know others on multifamily investing, and just you know that was my first larger event I went to, and and my expectations were blown out of the water. Um, so what are you guys doing this year in terms of you know networking and education events and um, you know, how can we reach out and, um, you know, learn more from you guys? Well, what we did last year, we, we learned a lot. It was 175 uh, attendees we had in Knoxville. The first thing we learned was Knoxville is not a good place to have it because it's a pain in the butt to fly there, right? So we moved it to Nashville. So anybody out there who wants to have a nice weekend, October 6th and 7th in Nashville, it's a great city. Um, we had too many speakers in the last event. There was like 25 speakers. And what we did was there was no upselling. So we had a guy talking about laundry. Not sexy. A guy talking about insurance, not sexy. But it was all multifamily. It was all geared towards multifamily real estate. You want to meet our, you know, syndication attorney this year? She's going to be there. You want to have listen to Jay Scott from Bigger Pockets? He's going to be there. We have Bruce Peterson. We have Reed Goosens. Guys who are in the business, not guys who are selling stuff, but guys who are actually doing it. And I think that's important. And for me, I made it super reasonable. It's $250 per ticket. And, you know, if you've been to an event, that's a ton of value. Um, the other thing we learned was people want to network more at these events. So we didn't have enough time in between to network, to do breakout sessions. And we didn't have enough Q&As because you do presentations and you think you know what people want. But I think the Q&A is so powerful because you're actually answering people's questions on what their pain points are, not what your – my pain point might be a lot different than yours. My pain point might be, hey, how do I find a deal? Your pain point might be, hey, how do I find the money? So it's really imperative to be able to listen to what people want. So that, that I think those are the couple of things that we changed. We limited the number of speakers down to 10 to 12. Jake and I do a few presentations also. The networking is great. The city is great. The venue is great. We're going to have about 300 people. That's what we're targeting. I think we might have even more. And we, you know, we've got 10 or 12, you know, vendors of ours and sponsors who are going to be there. They're great. They answer questions and there's no hard sells. You want to become part of the community. Education with us is great. If you don't, that's fine. But my whole goal is to build Jake and Gino community, the private Facebook group, and to be able to have people who are like-minded, not to have any spamming in there. But hey, listen, if Scott has a question and you've been on the private Facebook group, there's a ton of value in that group. I mean, people are asking questions, they're holding themselves accountable. I like to continue to grow mastermind groups within that group. Um, it's an awesome place to actually network. And like I said, money's not the cause, it's the result. The more value that I can add to these students and to these people, the more money that I'm going to make down the road. So. That's what that's what our vision is. Uh, it's amazing. I, I mean, right there. I mean, that reflective process is great. It, you know, it shows that you're continuing to grow, and whatever mm-hmm. problem that you have, you're gonna figure it out. You know, mm-hmm. I, I love that resourcefulness. Um, mm-hmm. So, so where do you see you know Jake and Gino going? Um, and let's talk about you know the economy right now. You know, has that changed your view from mom and pop apartments? Are are you, you know, going to more of you know a long term buy and hold? Um, you know, what's your outlook going forward? You know, I really try not to listen to the news because we are living in the best period ever. I don't care what anybody says to you. Um, I was in the Bahamas, amazing place, but let me tell you, it's a third world country. It is not the United States of America. If people have, think they have problems in this country, go to the rest of the world and see what the problems are in the rest of the world. We have so much opportunity here. The internet has allowed me and hundreds and thousands of other people to be able to create products online, to be able to reach more people. Um, 
you know, hey, is the, is the economy hot? Do we have problems? Yes, we do. But I think there's so much opportunity, and especially the multifamily space, there's so many people who are financially illiterate, unfortunately, which helps our space because they won't buy houses. They can't afford to uh, save money. I talk to so many millennials who are just saddled with debt. They've got more debt than our, you know, our ancestors had in a home. They've got student debt that, that just crippling them. And it's not just the debt and the payment itself. When you have that negative energy drawing you down, how can you think of investing when you're thinking about paying this mortgage payment and this student loan and this car? So they're stuck behind the eight ball. So they can't afford to buy a house. So unfortunately, they're renting. People are moving from the southeast, becoming more transient. Those people are going into rental situations. Baby boomers are retiring and downsizing. They're going into rental situation. So I think multifamily is, um, you know, long term. I think, you know, the affordable housing crisis we have is only going to get worse. And I think the mom and pop C space is where the cash flow is to be made. Are we buying nicer assets? We are if we can find something. But I was sent something yesterday. Somebody's pitching to me a sub five cap rate student housing in Knoxville. I mean, if I'm going to do sub five cap, might as well go up to the Northeast. I mean, I'm not a five cap guy I mean, with no upside. It just doesn't make absolutely any sense to me. I am in the wealth creation, right? I am not in the wealth preservation yet. When I'm 58 years old and I've got $72 million, that makes sense to me. But for the majority of people, those assets don't make sense. Know what you're investing in. Know why you're investing in it. Know what your market is. We're, five, we're six to seven cap, B, seven-ish cap on the C properties. That's what we're looking at and we want to have upside. Awesome. Um, so let's talk about the wealth preservation versus creating it. You know, is that, you know, let's say you get to a certain point and what's that reflection process look like? So you've got X amount passive monthly income um, and, you know, maybe do you diversify, you know, from multifamily investing into other assets or is that, you know, and you're, you're an avid reader. So, you know, what are that's people, a great question, you know, who've that, done that, what that, you've that. done? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, let, read, read the millionaire mind, the millionaire fast lane again. He talks about it. You listen to these guys who prognosticate about financial literacy, whether it's a Suze Yorman or Dave Ramsey. They're both great people. But where do they make their money? Not investing in mutual funds. They made their money in their businesses, in their financial products that they sell. And what do they do with their money? They get their 25, 30, 40 million dollars and they buy tax free muni bonds and they live on the interest alone. That's how these people make money. That's what you do with your income. If you're just hitting a certain income level, I would put it into those wealth preservation, whether it's whole life insurance, whether it's tax free muni bonds. I'm not there yet. I don't know if I'll ever be there yet. I don't know if I want to be there yet because I like the passive income. I like the aspect of you know the, the real estate as far as tax benefits. We keep buying, we keep doing cost segregation, we keep wiping out the income going forward, going forward, going forward. So I don't know what my path leads i don't want to think that far ahead but i still like the business and if we can continue to buy one or two assets a year that's great um and we just want to continue to, to you know spin off like i said that spoke whether it's the jake and gino we, let's start with the multifamily. here's the multifamily business we have the property management company which is one spoke we have the education company jake and gino which is another spoke and that not only throws off income to the uh, to the multifamily it also gives us the credibility it gives us the ability to be on these calls to talk to other people to network with other people we want to create a brokerage company 
in Knoxville, Tennessee, so we can start sourcing our own deals. And if we have our own deals on, off market, great way to get it. But then you know what? A 25 unit deal that's too small for us, we can sell to our community, right? So you have the property management. You know, listen, what about flooring? Maybe we start our own flooring company. Maybe we start sourcing products from China. Maybe we start, you know, uh, you know, a thousand units. Maybe you can start a whole laundry company that way. There's just so many things that trash, trash valet company. There's so many different ways to uh, expand the business through multifamily. So whenever you guys are creating a business, think of, you know, I mean, I, mean, I love Robert Allen. I mean, a lot of people from the 80s, he's probably too young to, to know him, but he talks about revenue streams, additional streams of income. If you're living on one stream of income, which the majority of us were, and I was, that restaurant, that one stream stops. Wow, what's going to happen? But you know what? Hey, Jake and Gino, if we don't do great with the company a couple months, we have to reinvest it. I at least have the money coming in from our, you know, day-to-day operations and our management company and the assets themselves that can that can hold me over. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's great. I just want to thank you very much, you know, for being on the show today. So, uh, one more question: What is your best advice for yourself just starting out in multifamily investing? I just got off a call with a guy doing a coaching and he asked me a critical question. What do I do if I talk to my parents or people who say that investing is risky and, and downplay and say, you know, it's not for you or, you know, being negative? Surround yourself with people who are like minded like you. Get into a mastermind group. Talk to people who are going to empower you and who like your vision and just get rid of the people who don't. Take a stock in yourself because you have part responsibility to bear because when I was in the restaurant I was surrounding myself with people that I didn't really want to be around um so look at the top five people you hang around with and I can guarantee you you're where you are because that's what you were doing um be responsible for all your actions you know three four five years ago I wasn't successful I would always blame Obama for the economy back in eight and oh nine or ten it wasn't Obama it was me I was holding myself back everyone else there's a lot of other people out there making millions of dollars what were they doing differently they were doing successful things they had successful habits so take stock in yourself see what you want to do write down a clear goal a clear vision for what you want whether it's multifamily can be single family fix and flip find people who are doing it gravitate towards them and do a little something every day to stay motivated and to stay inspired and don't be afraid to share your wins with others and just surround yourself with people you want to be around. That's some great advice. All right. Gino, awesome job um, with the Jake and Gino platform. I'm a firm believer. You know, it's catapulted me into this passion of multifamily investing. And you, you always been more than friendly to reach out, offer advice. Um, and, you, and you guys, we credit you for that. I mean, you, you attracted all these like-minded individuals um, and an awesome job. It's, it's been a great pleasure talking to you today and uh, hopefully you have a great year going forward. Thanks, Scott. You know what? All your listeners, if you have any questions, it's Gino at jakeandgino.com. The website is jakeandgino.com. The podcast is Will of Our Profits, and I hope you guys come down in October because you're going to have a great time. It's going to be a great weekend, and I know Scott will be there, so he'll have a friend down there with you. Sounds great. Thanks, Thanks Gino. Scott. Take care. And that wraps up episode number three with Gino. Jake and Gino wrote the book, Wheelbarrow Profits, where they teach you how to create passive income, build wealth, and take control of your destiny through multifamily real estate investing. As jakeandgino.com, make sure you check out their educational platform. They do a wonderful job in teaching others how to build passive income through real estate. Make sure you check out our Facebook page, The Book Club Interview, and online at bookclubinterview.com. 
That's it for this week, and we'll see you next time.